Возлюбленный Богом Церковь, начиная наше богослужение пред Господом, встанем, пожалуйста, и утвердим обетование, относящееся к преддверию нашей надежды. Да воцарится воскресение Христова в наших телах. Склоним наши головы в молитве. Дорогой Небесный Отец, во имя Иисуса Христа, мы благодарны имени Твоему Святому за вновь представленную привилегию быть на месте всем, которое очертила десница Твоя для поклонения Святому имени Твоему. И ныне позволь наследию Твоему во имя крови завета подняться на вершины для нас недосягаемые и сокрушить всякое бремя и запинающий нас грех. Да будут прокляты в этом служении, как и прежде, все дела дьявола, болезни, нищета, преждевременная смерть, демоническая зависимость, всевозможные страхи, депрессии, разрушение, косность, невежество, все это да отступит от шатров святого народа Твоего. И ныне встань, Господи, на место покоя Твоего Ты и ковчег могущества Твоего, и да облекутся святые Твои спасением Твоим, и да возрадуются пред лицом Твоим. Дай нам больше от Духа Твоего, пропитай нас Духом Твоим святым, позволь нам найти светлое лицо Твое. Я представляю это служение в Твои божественные руки, виде Его рукою превознесенную, великий Бог, Отец и Дух Святой. Аминь. Да благословит вас Господь, можете садиться. Yeah.
Philippines, chapter 4, verses 15 through 20. Now you know, Philippines, know also, now you Philippines, know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again from my necessities, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. To entice people into the formula of prosperity, the emissaries of mammon, oftentimes they are based not on what they must do on their end to define the will of God in their life and fulfill it, but they focus on the fact that God desires for us to be materially successful. I have heard this place of scripture taken away, ripped out of scripture. They read, now my God, um, let him fulfill all of your need. Being, God shall supply all your need. They take this out of context and they begin to say what God desires. But we know that God desires, there is God's role and there is the role of man that must be fulfilled. By defining the will of God, Apostle Paul had wrote, and this is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual morality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects, he who rejects this does not reject men, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. You see here it says, let the Lord supply your need. This is a Paul blessing them. He wants God to supply their need. But when we're talking about the will of God, it turns out that the will of God, in the will of God, it doesn't exist for us to be prosperous. In the will of God, the will of God contains for us to do something for God. For us to be prosperous, this is now God's, God's end. This is God doing something on His end. It isn't the will of God for us. The will of God for us is so that we could uh, possess our vessel in sanctification and honor. 
for one main reason, that we can fulfill our calling. If our vessel will not be in sanctification and honor, we will never be able to fulfill our calling, which is not tied to material prosperity, but is tied to the adoption of our body through the redemption of Christ. Apostle Paul had wrote, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. So the kingdom of God is not tied at all to material things. It's not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Who serves God in this, he who serves toward righteousness, who dwells in this, he is acceptable to God. Romans chapter 14, verses 17 and 18. God isn't against for us to be materially prosperous, and he desires us to have um, supply in every need. But God is against us exchanging what is heavenly for what is earthly. For us to materially be prosperous, God's desire on his own isn't enough. God desires to even save the whole world, but um, the one who is saved is one who accepts salvation on the conditions of God. Returning to our main text, let us go back to certain places of Scripture that uh, define certain conditions that we must fulfill so that we can give God the foundation to bless us in the material sphere. And these conditions are expressed not in our actions, but in our motives that yield our correct state before God. Our correct state before God is building ourselves into an altar of the Lord armed according to the norms and standards established by God, whereas our gifts or our alms is a sacrifice laid on an altar that sanctifies a sacrifice and makes it holy. According to this place of scripture that we have read, our first place of scripture, alms is the ability to accept the delegated authority of God. Apostle Paul writes, you have sent me for my need, not once and not twice. So here it talks about the ability to accept the delegated authority. If a person says, I accept that which the messenger of God says, but at the same time, he doesn't honor God with tithes and offerings, or he doesn't bless this messenger. And, and I'm not meaning you need to directly, um, directly give me money, but I take my part from the tithes, and in this you, you supply me. But there are people who, who continually observe how the anointed people of God, how they are dressed, how they live, and they begin to envy them. In doing so, they can't accept them because alms is a voluntary offering. It's joy. It's when we have a part in accepting this person. I'm supplying him, I am sending him, sending him aid. Second, alms is a fruit that multiplies for our benefit. Apostle Paul says, you think that I could be, wouldn't be okay without you? He says to one of the churches, he says, you have, I received the things sent from you. A God will always find someone who is going to do this. 
When everyone had refused to supply Elijah, God had found the widow who would, who would supply him. God, for his person, will, will always supply him. Therefore, some people think that everything depends on them. No, the anointed man of God depends on God and not people. But for people, it's important. Apostle uh, Paul says, I am writing you this, but I don't seek something from you. I seek for fruit that is multiplying for your benefit. For your gain. Furthermore, alms is a sweet, a sweet smelling aroma that is pleasant to God. And fourth, alms is the guide through which all of our needs are met. You see, when all, our, when all of our needs will be met, when the above three conditions are going to be fulfilled and satisfied, we must understand the principles of Holy Scripture, that there is God's role and there is the role of man. We either close to God the opportunity to bless us materially or we enter or give him this foundation, this opportunity. Why do many saints live on close to, to poverty? Because they don't fulfill their role and thus they don't give God the, the foundation to bless them. Why do some people drive church to church, so-called missionaries and constantly ask and beg for money? Because practically the one who has sent them must, must supply them. And he doesn't just need to supply them, but he also he has to supply them in such a way so that when they go to the so-called evangelism, so that they can also uh, give the poor from out of this. But they continually drive uh, church to church, and they say, we're trying to supply or we're trying to do this and that. What do they do instead of building certain houses? They go and feed the homeless. But we living in our country, in order to help the homeless, in order to help the elderly, taxes are taken from us. Take a look among you, around you. Among you sit people who are in need, who don't live like you do. They don't have a kind of level of life. Help them instead. Why do you need to go somewhere you yourself don't even understand where? And then they want God to so-called bless them. If these people have money, then it's not God blessing them, but mammon. We are going to honor God with tithes and offerings right now. Our service without honor to God and tithes and offerings stops being worshipped to God. We can't enter into the spiritual gates of God if we come with empty hands. I will ask all of you to stand, and we are going to sing together. And we will remember that each time we honor God with tithes and offerings, willingly, voluntarily, in doing so, we acknowledge over us His authority and we express our love toward Him, our obedience. And thus, we give God the foundation to open to us the gates so that we can enter into Zion, to Jerusalem, the high Jerusalem, so that we can become partakers of it, and so that we can receive all forms of blessings that God has for us. I will gladly remind you that each time Israel had honored God with tithes and offerings, either in the tabernacle of Moses or the temple of Solomon, he was called to, according to, um, to the words that most had received from God, to raise their hands on their offerings and proclaim one unique proclamation that they were 
faithful to for thousands of years. We, being that same Israel, tied to that same root, drinking from the fruit of the same tree, will do the same thing. Please raise your right hand, a symbol of your righteous act, before the Lord and pray along with me, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. I have separated the tithes from my home and brought them into your home so that your home may have food. I do not give impurely. I do not give in sorrow. I do not give for the dead. I rejoice that I have the privilege to express my love and to acknowledge your authority. And according to your word, I ask you, right now, may your heavenly windows be opened and may your blessing come abundantly upon your redeemed nation. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you. You may be seated. Extend the master's hand 
And so, those who have a Bible, you can open along with me to a familiar place of Scripture for us. Yet one that also contains in itself the mystery of relations between man and God and God with man. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. Return to the ancient path of goodness. And so, as far as we know, the opportunity to find or return to the ancient path of goodness is the opportunity to enter the kingdom of heaven through the narrow gates, which in scriptures are called the elementary principles, that is, the reading teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. And this is the bond of truths that flow from one another and that verify the authenticity of one another, which we can acknowledge only through discipleship, through hearing the preached word about the nature and powers of the kingdom of heaven. The essence of the kingdom of heaven itself, which Christ called the kingdom gospel, is characterized in Christ's reigning teaching by such unearthly qualities as righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Speaking of these three qualities, which characterize the kingdom of heaven within man, we must remember that this passage of Scripture is not telling us to obtain these qualities, but to proclaim and demonstrate them. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine so before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This tells us that in order to obtain the kingdom of heaven in the form of these three qualities, which have no analogs in any dictionary in the world, we must first find it. And therefore, to search for the kingdom of heaven as the ancient path of goodness should be done through the fruit of righteousness, peace, and joy, which abide in the depths of the Holy Spirit. And as we've previously noted, very few are able to find the ancient path of goodness in the subject of the narrow gates in the reigning teaching of Christ. This, according to the repeated statements of Christ, means that many who, due to their own cruelty and ignorance, will not be able to find the narrow gates in the reigning teaching of Christ, are going to begin to approach it as a heretical error, as a result of which they will inherit eternal perdition. But those who humble their heart before God and become His disciple in order to enter through the narrow gates expressed in the reigning teaching of Jesus Christ will inherit eternal life. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. While studying the ancient path of goodness, we turn to the words of Apostle Paul, who, according to the mercy and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in short and concise definitions, was able to formulate the order that is present in the teaching of Christ. This is the image of the four rivers 
flowing from Eden for the irrigation of the garden, which are the prototype of the four main ruling teachings of Christ, each of which has a triplicity of different functions, which total 12. The number 12, as far as we know, is the image and standard of the 12 hours in a day, yielding the order of the kingdom of heaven in the 12 gates of the new Jerusalem and the 12 foundations of its wall. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, the new version of the translation of this verse. Therefore, there it said, having left the reigning teachings, but in the original it says, be having been sprinkled with the elementary principles of Christ and being clothed in the armor of life contained in the reign of this teaching, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. It's impossible to once again renew or to once again lay a foundation means if a person doesn't acknowledge this teaching and has stepped away from it, it's impossible to renew him with repentance. He, has, he himself has disattached himself from the kingdom of heaven, and his name is going to be, to be blotted out of the book of eternal life. Nothing will remain there. In a certain format, as much as God and the level of our faith have allowed us, we have already studied the doctrine of baptism, which expresses itself in baptism in water, Holy Spirit, and fire, and we have stopped to study the doctrine of laying on of hands that is presented on the southern side of New Jerusalem in three gates. Revelation chapter 21, verses 10 to 12, And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It had twelve gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Again, we're talking about um, the three southern gates right now. The three southern gates represent the doctrine of laying on of hands. It's an image of the powers that are contained on the southern side of the sanctuary, on which stood a golden lamp symbolizing the mind of Christ in the reborn spirit, thanks to which a holy person could penetrate the thoughts of God and keep a covenant made with God. Given the fact or, a covenant is a kind of agreement. How do we make this covenant if we don't know about it? In order to know about it, we need to penetrate the thoughts of God. Given the fact that the covenant of man with God and God with man that we make consists of three baptisms, it follows that in the teaching of Jesus Christ who came in the flesh, the doctrine of laying on of hands contains three ascending degrees of a covenant with God. This is the covenant of blood, covenant of salt, and covenant of rest. And the conclusion and functions of these three covenants are called to be made, flow, and abide in three baptisms, in baptism in water, baptism in the Holy Spirit, and baptism in fire. The doctrine of laying on of hands is a doctrine about a covenant made between God and man 
and man and God. The doctrine or laying on of hands is an image of the legal aspect in which a person with his own hand signs an agreement with God in which he consciously promises to serve God with a good conscience. In Scripture, any sacrifice made to God was called to bear the burden of the hand of the one who brought it, and he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Leviticus chapter 1 verse 4. The atonement for sin through the laying on of the hand on the head of the sacrifice, which in the face of the Son of Man takes sin upon itself, is accepting justification in which God does not impute sin to man. And the laying on of hands is an image of proclaiming the faith of our heart in that Jesus is Lord and that God has resurrected him for our justification. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 through 10. But if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus, that the Lord is Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Laying on of hands outside of the norms of the covenant and not according to the norms of the covenant will not gain favor in the atonement for sins. We have three levels of a covenant that pursue one goal, but fulfill three different functions that are presented in three different names. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant between God and man is presented in three great names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant between God and man is a covenant that is everlasting, firm, and immutable. Third, it's an agreement about what relations and collaboration will look like. Fourth, the covenant between God and man is a collaboration of the mind of Christ with the mind of man. Fifth, the covenant between God and man is legal possession of each other, identification in each other. Six, the covenant between God and man is the transferring of sovereign powers and authority to one another. Seven, the covenant between God and man is the responsibility of preparing an ark for the salvation of our household. Eight, the covenant between God and man is the right that a person has to enter into the sovereign presence of God and God into the sovereign presence of a person. And now, in this one covenant, let us turn to studying the first level of the covenant that is called to be present and verify the authenticity of the two subsequent levels. This is the covenant of blood that is the fourth, that as the fourth foundation of the wall of New Jerusalem is made from precious emerald stone. Revelation chapter 21 verse 19 The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The fourth foundation, emerald. Emerald is a precious stone of a beautiful green color. Ancient people ranked it in the second place after diamond and claimed that it was a stone of pure people with absolute clarity of thoughts and feelings. It does not tolerate the duality of confusion and lies. In addition to the fact that the fourth foundation of the wall of the heavenly Jerusalem is built from emerald, this gemstone is also indicated in the description of the rainbow surrounding the throne of God. Revelation chapter 4 verse 3 And he who sat there like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. This precious stone is so beautiful that no other precious stone can compare to its beauty. 
It allows the eyes to see one of the most pleasant phenomena in nature. According to the Roman Empire Pliny, the greenery of the trees is a great pleasure, but not one thing can compare with the greenery of an emerald. However, going back to the rainbow that was around the throne in appearance like an emerald, we should know that if every person, regardless of their religion, doesn't belong to God in the covenant of blood or breaks this covenant, they are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5-7 For this they will fully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, so which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So practically, God has made a covenant with his people in the blood of his son, and not the blood of, of beasts. People back then had turned from God, and God had drawn them in the flood. Now, and even greater punishment of God's anger exists for them in fire. If they violate or they neglect the covenant of blood. Emerald is a part of the 12 precious stones that are found on the breastplate of judgment of the high priest. Considering that through the breastplate of judgment, through Urim and Thummim, God spoke to man and the function of the fourth foundation of the wall of the heavenly Jerusalem is the voice of the covenant of blood of which is said, we have come to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, meaning each foundation has its own voice. By making a covenant of blood with God in baptism of water, we accept and agree with his order that is present in his immovable kingdom that contains the powers of the future age expressed in the reigning teaching of Jesus Christ. Sometimes they ask, what are the powers of the future age? This is the reigning teaching of Jesus Christ. It, it contains the powers of the future age. However, for a complete understanding of the essence of the precious emerald stone, we, as in the previous foundation, should consider the name of the apostle who is engraved on this foundation, because it is the name that determines the dignity and nature of emerald that represents the covenant of blood in this foundation, while the foundation itself made from emerald determines the work that God does with the powers contained in this name. And these powers on the fourth foundation, as we will see later, will be God's mercy associated with the all-devouring fire of the Heavenly Father's zeal. The name that is engraved on the fourth foundation of the wall of heavenly Jerusalem is John, the son of Zebedee. Matthew chapter 10, verse 2. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. We've already noted that the names of the apostles on the twelve foundations of the walls can be comprised of two or sometimes three names. And according to scripture, the combination of names belonging to the apostle whose name is engraved on the fourth foundation of the wall of New Jerusalem is John, Zebedee, Boanerges. Then he appointed 12. This is Mark chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, so that we understand where this third name 
was was given or where it came from. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. We've already noted that Boanerges literally means sons of thunder, heralds of the wrath of God, fulfillers of God's wrath, the spokesmen of the zeal of God, and sons of divine fire. The name John in Hebrew means Yahweh is merciful. That is why we had said that this foundation demonstrates the nature of the mercy of God. In Hebrew, the name of his father, Zebedee, means fisherman. In Greek, it means God gifts or the gift of God, which means that through the gift of sacrifice, God will show his mercy. The combination of these three names and the fourth foundation of the wall of New Jerusalem means that God will demonstrate his mercy in people through the gift of his grace that is contained in the virtue of his all-consuming and devouring zeal означенной в достоинстве своей пламенеющей и все пожирающей ревности. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 28 through 29. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant, by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. The blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. If a person neglects the covenant and he was and who he resulted in death the holy spirit says how much worse punishment will be the one who counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing how is he going to be able to honor it without knowing its powers. According to this meaning, the fourth foundation of the wall of New Jerusalem, built out of the precious emerald stone, is called to demonstrate the powers of the Heavenly Father that are contained in the capabilities of His name Yahweh, in which He unveils the principles and the boundaries and statutes of which He demonstrates His mercy, because of which the teaching about the covenant of blood is the teaching about the powers that are contained in the mercy of God, whereas the teaching about the mercy of God is the teaching about the powers that are contained in the blood of the cross of Christ. And let us remember that all of the future teachings will flow from one another, and each of them is going to have the foundation of the previous one. Furthermore, in each of the subsequent teachings, we will see fragments and details of the previous teachings, and the foundation of all these teachings will always be the death of Jesus and the baptism of the New Testament contained in his blood that was spilled. And in the format of this sermon, it is unthinkable and impossible to present the full spectrum of powers that are contained in the covenant that God made with us in the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I will mention only some components that are important in my eyes, which, we will, which we will be an opportunity to realize the fate of the promises that we can receive only on the conditions outlined in the blood of the covenant.
And the first component of the covenant of blood that I would like us to pay attention to are the powers that are called to yield the source in format of our righteousness. Romans chapter 3, verses 24 to 26 being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The blood of the covenant under the condition that we cooperate with it, and in order to cooperate with it, we need to know its powers and its contents. It's called to be a redemption from sin and death, or the price with which God ransoms us out of the captivity of sin, which we ended up in thanks to the fact that we were enticed into sin by the cunning snake, the mother of all who live on this earth. But God has redeemed us by the blood of the covenant. Redeemed means returned back, ransomed from the captivity of sin and death, connected with God as one, beloved of God, worthy of God, heir to God, holy unto the Lord, the property of God, and the lot of God. We must know that the blood of the covenant as the standards of God's righteousness is first brought into the presence of God for God himself to demonstrate the fulfillment of his perfect will which yields the atmosphere in which God rests from his works. And only then it is offered for us so that it could present us as righteous before him in the blood that was spilled by Jesus Christ. Thus, the blood of the covenant, first and foremost, is called to hallow God in order to satisfy the requirements of His holiness, and only then does it fulfill our needs. These needs are expressed in our need for protection before the face of God from His consuming holiness. The blood of covenant, first, is called to protect us from the all-consuming holiness of God. If a person has entered into a covenant with God but does not understand how to cooperate with the powders that are contained in the blood of the covenant and tries to enter into the presence of God using formulas he doesn't understand and that are not the faith of his heart, the door into the presence of God will be closed for him because this door in the face of Jesus Christ can be opened into the presence of God of the Heavenly Father only for those who understand and cooperate with the blood of the covenant. Only God and no one else can fully appraise the price of the blood of the Son that was spilled, because this price surpasses the understanding of man, and while growing deeper in Christ, who is a true example of every sacrifice, we learn one of the most comforting truths for us. And this truth is written in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And so, 
God saw him as a sacrifice for sin upon the cross so that we could be made righteous before the face of eternal holiness. Initially, Christ was expelled from the presence of God due to the transferring of sin upon his head, of our sin upon his head. This was that so that we could enter into the house of the Father. The light of God's face was hidden from him so that we could dwell in the light of this face. He had to endure three days and three nights of gloomy darkness. And everything that we deserved as lost sinners was laid on him so that everything deserved by him by performing the work of redemption could become our destiny. Everything was against him when he was hung on that awful tree so that nothing could be against us. He, through death and condemnation, was likened to us that we might be lifted up to him through his life and his righteousness. He drank the cup of anger and the cup of horror to the bottom so that he, or that we could drink the cup of salvation. He was dwelt with according to our merits, so that his merits could be imputed to us. Such is the wonderful truth that makes up our righteousness bestowed upon us in the blood of the covenant. The leaders of the people of Israel who reached a staggering level of stiffness. They knew that this was the Son of God. They rated this blood in 30 silver coins. Fortunately, for the most part, the same price is given to the blood of the covenant by numerous leaders who call themselves Christians. Selfishness, a thirst for power, liberal theology, and the blind seal of religious fanaticism, unfortunately, are widely accepted. Most Christians follow the same direction in which the people of Israel once walked. And the words of Christ, once addressed to the leaders of Israel, are addressed in the same way to the leaders of our time. Woe to you! For you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Luke 11, 47-48, religious ascetism and its polar permissiveness, betting on the practice of spiritual gifts, virtues devoid of true meanings, religious traditions, human traditions, and activities in the form of a ritual deprived of the spirit, overshadow the significance of the blood of the Lamb and reduce the price of this blood to nothing. When the soul begins to revel in self-righteousness, when it relies on personal virtues and religious activities, it thereby violates the blood of the covenant and offends the spirit of grace. We must know that no matter what our righteousness is in the eyes of the holy and perfect God, it looks like soiled clothes. Only the blood of the unblemished and pure lamb can satisfy the scorching and incorruptible holiness of the Father. God does not favor us when we make our foundation not the blood of the covenant, but something else that seems more worthy or honorable in our eyes. Have, I will remind you that when the first disciples had went after Christ, then their foundation was not on the blood of the covenant. Their foundation was what nowadays many Christians 
are founded on denominations, supernatural powers and miracles. Agree with me, the disciples were astonished. Everyone had said no one had ever spoken like this man has. Take a look. The blind are healed. The lame are healed. The lepers are healed. Never has this happened before. And of course, the foundation of the disciples was founded on the great supernatural power on wonders. But Golgotha had destroyed the foundation of the disciples. Each one had walked from there astonished, understanding nothing, realizing nothing, and said, we were mistaken. We thought that he was a Messiah, but he was not the Messiah. He was simply just one of the prophets, but this was a prophet, a strong man, they thought. Why? Because they had built their foundation on wonders, on the practice of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, on evangelism that Jesus had conducted. But Jesus had destroyed, through the cross, he destroyed their foundation. Why? So that he can build a foundation on the blood and not on miracles and wonders and signs. When he had once again appeared, having been resurrected, then their foundation was on the blood. That's why when people begin to build their foundation, not on the blood of the covenant, but when they ask, do you have prophecies? Do you have healing in your church? Take a look. Their foundation is founded on prophecies and healings. And they ask you, do you have this? Do you have powers? Do you understand what the contents and the riches that are contained in the blood of covenant are? Do you practice them? Do you work with them at all or collaborate with them? What is your foundation built on, we ask them? Your faith teaching, what is it founded on? Do you have a foundation or have you built your house on the sand? What is going to be with this house that is built on, foundation, or on foundations of miracles and wonders? It's going to be destroyed down to the sand. The sand isn't a foundation. You see, under the sand, Christ referred to his great wonders, miracles, and signs. He had referred to that because people are going to build upon this, build upon these certain supernatural foundations, supernatural wonders, and not on the blood. Therefore, people build incorrectly, and having broken the covenant of blood in such a way, sooner or later, their building will fall, and its fall will be terrible and fatal, and nothing can be changed when, like a lightning bolt, from out of the blue, these following words will sound, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are far, where you are from, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, Luke 13, 27. The practice of spiritual gifts is not righteousness. It's not righteousness. If we have made our foundation upon them, then this was not righteousness. This was not an expression of righteousness, but this was a dishonor to righteousness. And so let us remember that we can inherit the kingdom of heaven only by having righteousness that we can receive on the conditions outlined in the blood of the covenant. Second, the covenant of blood is called to be our righteous act of washing our blemished conscience from sin. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19-23. Therefore, brethren, having boldness, 
boldness meaning the legal right, courage, because courage sometimes is also audacity and not boldness when it is not founded on the conditions of God. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which you consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Without wavering, meaning someone is going to try to turn us away from this, to turn us away from the foundation that we are building on, to give us some lighter foundations. Because you know, on a foundation, there are almost two-thirds Two thirds of means go into the foundation, and a lot of time is spent in order to lay a foundation that it would be capable of holding withstanding the storm of Satan, withstanding the flesh of a person with its fiery emotions. When people say, "Lord, I can't. I am simply just man. You've created me like this." I can't. And they think that if they say this to God, that it's going to justify them before God. You can't because you don't have a foundation. That's why you can't. If you had a foundation, you would know the powers contained in it. You would gain power from there and then you would be able to endure and you would say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's one thing when preachers say, once again, once again, let's, let's, let's cry out. Yes, we can, we can cry out, we can read this formula, but if we don't understand or know this power of the blood, these powers in it, we can sing about it, but we can't use it. Because only a person who has knowledge of the promise, what it contains, is able to use this promise, to use this truth, to use these words. To make a covenant with God through the sprinkling of the blood of a birth sacrifice, it was first necessary to spill its blood. Then he took the cup and gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 to 28. In Hebrew, one of the meanings of the phrase, of the phrase behold, or blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, means the goat for Jesus out. In our translation, it means a goat for absolution. If someone wants to verify this, you can take the strong dictionary and take a look at what this place of scripture means. Poured er, blood which is shed. Then you get the meaning goat for Azazel. For us, it's a goat for absolution because the, transla uh, the translators, when they had translated, it into the Greek language, and they were afraid to translate in the literal text that this is a goat for Azazel, because the Gentiles, they then could have perhaps understood what it is, do you have something tied to idols or something tied to Satan? And therefore they just wrote goat for absolution because, because the function of this goat for Azazel was to take these sins into an impassable land. And this indicates a connection 
connection with the actions performed in the day of purification in which two goats were brought before the face of the Lord. Then a lot was cast regarding both goats and which goat would be brought to God as a burnt offering for the cleansing of sins. That is, which goat, as the image of Christ, will bear these sins on the cross in order to cleanse, or rather justify his people both from the sins with which they were born and from the sins with which they sinned. And which goat, like the image of Azazel, will take the sins that were previously placed on the goat brought as a burnt offering and carry them to an impassable land from which it is impossible to return. The Azazel goat represents the fallen cherub who will receive complete and eternal retribution for the commission of original sin in the universe. After this action, the first goat that was brought to God as an offering for the cleansing from sins and as a prototype of Christ who took the sins of his people upon himself and died on the cross of Golgotha will be justified. Because of which, or in the beginning, a lot was cast, and then there was a lot for the Lord. And this goat, before it was killed, all the sins, all the sins of Israel were confessed, and then it was it, this goat was killed, and his blood was brought to the sanctuary, and he was completely burnt. After this, they brought a goat for Azazel, and then they once again confessed these very same sins, those sins that were previously confessed on the other goat, and they had sent this goat into an impassable land, which he would not return from. Because of which, God will receive the legal opportunity to resurrect Jesus Christ who represents the image of the goat brought as a burnt offering for the cleansing of sins. If Christ, in his time, would not have justified himself in the spirit, God would not have been able to raise him from the dead. But as scripture says, he was justified in the spirit, or rather he gave evidence to God of his non-involvement with sin. 1 Timothy 3.16 Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. Without this meaning, the day of purity Purification could not be called the day of purification or the day of justification. So if the first goat is not resurrected, then the meaning of cleansing or purification lacked, because purification could come only through the, the resurrection of this goat. Only then the people of Israel could be purified. But for it to be purified, it was necessary to justify it, to take, a, to take the sins off this goat and put it on another. Because for the Israelites, this day of cleansing and accepting justification related to the resurrection of Christ and not his death. The very term resurrection indicates victory in which Jesus, by his death, trampled the second death in the face of the fallen cherub. And as far as we know, the second goat is although he bore sins in an impassable land, he didn't die for the sin laid on his head. And secondly, the blood of this goat was not brought into the presence of God for cleansing from sin. And therefore, the goat for Azazel could not represent the image of Christ who bore the sin of the world. And given that the goat of Azazel did not die and was not raised, this action is impossible to interpret as a second side of Christ's death. Justify his nation, Christ had to take this sin upon himself so that he could die for the sin and be resurrected by having justified. 
Romans chapter 4, verses 24 through 25. But also for us it shall be imputed to us, who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, and was raised because of our justification. Raised for our justification. And thus, the full meaning of the word absolution translated from Hebrew is seen below. Life given in exchange for absolution, life given in exchange for deliverance from sins, life poured out like drops of fragrant mirror, life given to the sound of the jubilee horn, life given to the sound of the jubilee trumpet. According to these words, it follows that spilled blood is spilled life, and to enter the inheritance of this life is possible only with the covenant of blood. Thus, the covenant of blood makes us holy. The covenant of salt allows us to demonstrate holiness, and the covenant of rest allows us to see the result of holiness in God's rest. But we'll talk about this later. Right now, um, we'll move on to talking about the third component of the covenant of blood. It's the right to drink new wine that is called to give us the opportunity to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 26, 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In this case, the kingdom of the Heavenly Father on one hand is referring to the congregation of saints from every tribe, tongue, and nation that have entered into a new covenant with God made in the blood that was spilled by Jesus Christ. On the other hand, it is referring to every individual person who belongs to this congregation and is able to govern over himself on the conditions that are contained in the covenant of blood. And this, according to Christ, is to drink new wine with him in the kingdom of both his Father and our Father. At his resurrection, the first person to whom Christ appeared was Mary Magdalene. She was called Mary Magdalene because she had lived from uh, Magdalene, which was not far from Jerusalem. Turning to her, Jesus said, Go to my brother and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. John chapter 20, verses 17-18. New wine in the subject of the blood of Christ poured for our sins becomes accessible only after, in water baptism, we make a covenant of blood with him in the blood of his son. After making a covenant of blood, we will receive a legal opportunity to realize the inheritance and powers that are contained in the blood of Jesus Christ. And the opportunity to enter into the inheritance that is contained in the blood of Christ is called to be realized through our conscious cooperation with the powers that are contained in the new wine. And in this mutual agreement, we must learn our role for which we carry responsibility as well as God's role for which He carries a responsibility, as well as before us. This is what the covenant says. Otherwise, due to our ignorance, we will attempt to fulfill God's role, which will lead us to disappointment. Because many children of God who have stepped into a covenant with God in the baptism in water, like in the parable of the prodigal son, will refuse to enter into their inheritance in a new wine due to their ignorance and their stiffness. 
Wine represents joy, the joy of God in which he dwells. It's an atmosphere in which God dwells. I will come to the sacrifice of God, to the God of joy and the God of gladness. Joy always means victory. It always means that everything that God has said, he will do. Therefore, we may rejoice. Victory already exists in what God has said. He will fulfill his word. In this parable, Christ, in the face of two brothers, showed how we must enter into the inheritance that is contained in new wine and how we must not do it. I will read only a part of the, of the parable. Now, his older son was in the field. When the father had accepted the younger brother, uh, who had returned, the prodigal son, uh, the father, in honor of him, he had organized a feast. There was joy, there was loud noise, there was, a, there was a feast that was prepared, but the other older son was in the field evangelizing, so-called. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these and he said, said, I'm working there, I'm in the field, I'm evangelizing, what's going on here? And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Take a look here. He was angry and would not go in. He was angry at God, his father, and he didn't want to go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I, may make merry, that I might make merry with my friends. Take a look here. For so many years he had served, but he had never used the powers that are contained in the blood of the covenant. He said, you'll never allow me to make merry with this new wine that you have. I have never transgressed your commandment, yet you've never done this for me. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. You have revealed to him the riches of the covenant. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make Mary and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. So, it's possible to be with the Father and not use this one, this one or rather this covenant, the powers of this covenant. He said, all that's mine is yours. I'll tell you what allowed him not to use it. Take a look here, it says. You did not give me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. This person had friends who were not the friends of the father. But the younger son, he had returned. He was to return with nothing. The father accepted him as if he had everything. Why? Never will you be able to use the riches and joy of the new wine contained in the blood of the covenant if you have friends that are not the friends of the father. This is you who say that he loves everyone. 
But he actually loves only his children. Don't lie to people and to yourselves and say that God loves everyone. God loves his children, and that's it. He doesn't love anyone else. Again, I repeat, God loves only his children. Christ had given himself up for his church, having washed her through the word. The Father had loved his children in a way that he had sent his son to this world in order to save his children from this world because the meaning of this verse says for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life take a look here what is this kind of love to this world that if for whoever believes in him shall not perish. What kind of love is that then? What kind of love, tolerant love are you talking about here? Scripture says that the anger of God is going to go on the sons of resistance who don't accept his love. The anger of God. So we preach. We preach, or many preach, that God loves everyone, and this God loves everyone gives these people the opportunity to communicate with those who say, get out from the midst, don't talk to these people, for bad company corrupts good morals, get out of Babylon so that when I'm going to judge it, you shall not be judged along with them. If you don't leave, if you communicate with it, you shall be judged as well. Good wine has the power to bring pleasure to a person and make him dependent regardless of his consent. So, by invading the limits of man, ordinary wine violates his sovereign rights, turns him to slavery, and forces him to do things that he would never have agreed to do he had not become addicted to this drink. And therefore, consuming wine, while at the same time proclaiming your independence from wine, is either a clouding of sober reasoning, outright hypocrisy, or outright lies. Drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is a drunkard, not, not even to eat with such a person. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. 1 Corinthians 6, 10, 5, 11, 13. should be noted how easily people lie to them to try to convince themselves that cultural wine drinking and drunkenness are two completely different things. They do this, say this, for one purpose, so that their conscience does not condemn them, does not bother them, so that they can go to perdition, because they are heading to perdition, but their conscience won't bother them, because they will enter into their conscience. You know what? My dear, stop, stop justifying me. There is such a thing as cultural wine drinking and there is such a thing as drunkenness. And if I drink a little bit, and if I drink at a normal amount, there is a cultural wine drinking. Even atheists, doctors say there is no such thing as cultural wine drinking of alcoholic drinks. Any kind of alcohol disrupts a person's organism. And scripture says, it is not fit for kings to drink, nor priests. Therefore, these people ought to think about how if there exists the cultural drinking of wine, then according to this same principle, it should be possible for cultural adultery, cultural thievery, 
cultural lies, cultural idolatry, etc. to exist. Apostle Paul wrote about how it is impossible to simultaneously find joy and comfort in two wines that belong to two very different kingdoms that oppose one another and are found in completely different dimensions. And not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18, which means to not drink wine and not be satisfied by it. It is the true meaning of the phrase, to not be drunk with wine. To drink new wine means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and so, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks the blood has eternal life, and that will raise him up at the last day. Drunkards are someone who drinks wine, but doesn't consider himself a drunkard. However much he may try to justify himself, still violates the covenant of blood, and in doing so, drinks condemnation to himself. New wine in the covenant of blood, under the condition that it is lawfully taken, is meant for the new man who was born of God. Matthew chapter 9, verse 17. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Why? Why are people? Why do people turn away from God? Because they have poured new wine into old wineskins, into their old nature. They have tried to understand the powers of the blood of the covenant with their own flesh and mind, thinking that it's their God, that they are able to to discern. Jesus does not make a covenant of blood with a person who is not born again, because the agreement that is contained in the blood of the covenant is meant only for the heirs of the throne. Therefore, new wine in the covenant of blood under the condition that it is unlawfully taken is the only unshakable foundation. The structure erected on it is able to withstand all the fierceness of hell and all the fury of the frantic dragon. The church in the face of Jesus Christ, who fought a Calvary and won it with the price of his blood, was born in it, sanctified, and justified in it. New wine in the covenant of blood under the condition that it is lawfully taken is called to lead a person to eternal life and serves as a guarantee for him that God will raise him up in the last day. John chapter 6, verses 53-57 Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drinking deep. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. It's interesting that new wine in the covenant of blood under the condition that it is lawfully taken is called to keep us from stumbling and present us faultless before the presence of the glory of our Heavenly Father with exceeding joy, because only new wine is exceeding joy. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy, exceeding or blameless, faultless in the blood of the covenant, we can be faultless only in the blood of the covenant. Exceeding joy is not so much as a feeling as it is the discipline of the mind and heart that are directed to fulfilling the perfect will of the Father expressed in love toward righteousness 
and hatred toward lawless or toward wickedness. Psalms 45, verse 8. This is also written in the book of Hebrews. It's taken from this psalm. You have loved, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. This is not an emotion. Joy that this is referring to, the joy of this wine, it's not an emotion. Emotion is the flesh. But it's something, it's the discipline of the mind and heart to love righteousness and hate lawlessness. New wine in the covenant of blood is the Holy Spirit. It is, it's His presence that is discovered in this new wine. The difference between the wine of the Holy Spirit and alcoholic drinks is that first, the wine of the Holy Spirit can take possession of a person only with this person's agreement. And second, a person can drink the wine of the Holy Spirit only on the conditions that are presented or contained in the covenant of blood. And the first condition is comprised of completely refusing to drink alcoholic drinks. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drinks. You nor your sons with you when you go into the tabernacle of meaning, lest you die. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy. Kings and priests, those who serve in your temple 24 hours a day, are you wanting to pour some kind of other wine in there, thinking that one and the same are going to be? Friendly neighbors, you need to distinguish between holy and holy and between clean and unclean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. Wine, when consumed, does not worry about sovereignty. It simply captures a person's heart and it corrupts him. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Drink the wine of the Holy Spirit, meaning from this wine, this um, wine causes dissipation. The fourth covenant or component of the covenant of blood is called to be the strong consolation of hope that is called to lead us behind the veil of the sanctuary. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 20. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, by which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The blood of the covenant, as well as the twelve baked breads made from the best fla flour, were brought behind the veil of the sanctuary into the presence of God. However, even these twelve breads were evidence of the death of Christ, in which he, fulfilling the perfect will of the Father to redeem his nation from the power of death, spilled his blood. Thus, and even these breads were evidence of this blood that was spilled. Thus hope is the imperishable and incorruptible treasury that is contained in the powers of the blood of the covenant, because of which this hope is comprised of information about who God is for us and what God has done for us in the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled. And that is not all. The hope of our calling contained in the powers of the blood of the covenant is not only the treasury where the promises of God are contained, but this hope that is presented 
in the blood of the covenant is also one of the names and virtues of God. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13. If people would drink new wine, they would have a kind of hope that nothing would be able to shake them. Whatever may occur, whatever trouble you might fall in, if you know that on your account is a certain amount, then you would never be sorrowful. And therefore, the uncharted inheritance containing the treasure of all the promises that God placed on our account in the blood of the covenant is God himself. According to this meaning, the hope of our calling that is contained in the powers of the blood of the covenant gains its power only when a covenant between man and God is made, which essentially means that the hope that is contained in the powers of the blood of the covenant is called to build relations between God and the category of people who are bound to God by the bonds of the blood of the covenant. Beware of dogs, beware, beware of evil workers, beware of mutilation, for we are their circumcision who worship God in the spirit. So circumcision meaning the blood of the covenant, we rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. Circumcision in which blood was spilled is an image and condition of making a covenant of blood with God. In this covenant, God had promised to be a father to man and lead him into his presence. By circumcision, we are referring to refusal to trust in our flesh, which means to die to our flesh. According to such a statement, it follows that carnal Christians can talk about the hope that is contained in the blood of the covenant, but they cannot have it, because like Adam in the Garden of Eden, they are not yet capable of worshiping the Father in spirit Adam was carnal and his relationship with God did not flow on the level of the spirit but the level of the soul. And he became the second Adam became the spirit and had lead, led us into worship in spirit. Thus the covenant of blood comes to power when a person through discipleship and hearing the preached word about the kingdom of heaven begins to proclaim his faith in that Jesus is his Lord and that he has risen for his justification. The next purpose of hope that is contained in the blood of the covenant is called to renew our strength when we grow faint and weary while waiting for the fulfillment of the promised word. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young women shall utterly fall, but those who wait in the Lord shall renew their strength. So those who are found in the blood of the covenant will be renewed in their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 30 31. From this place of scripture, it follows that those who wait on the Lord are those who have hope in the powers and abilities that are contained in the blood of the covenant, who, despite their strength and age, will be renewed in strength like eagles. This will give them the ability to mount up with wings like eagles and use not their own strength, but the strength contained in the covenant or the word of God and the Holy Spirit that are found in the powers of the blood of the covenant. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time for the presence of the servant, from the presence of the servant. Considering the format of our time, 
for today our sermon shall conclude. And I think that this is enough for us to understand the meaning of the blood of the covenant. And right now we're going to pray. And all of those who desire to challenge the powers of hell, illnesses, poverty, fear, their emotions that try to justify themselves, we can enter into this inheritance today. And God, by the power of His blood, will justify us before His countenance. He will protect us from His anger. He will send His healing. He will send His power. And He will free us from the authority of the dependence of all sin. And He will free us from all illness. He will point us to hope where our freedom is laid in our healing so that we can look upon it and we can begin to proclaim the inexistent as existent. Amen. Let us pray. We wait for you at the altar. May the Lord bless you in victory over evil, over illnesses, over demons. I will pray along with you, with your prayer, and I ask you to repeat along with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I come to you with my shame, my fear, my dependence, my pain, my sufferings. I ask you, forgive me, wash me, cleanse me, heal me, protect me. I accept your word, my inheritance in the covenant of blood. And right now, before the face of heaven and hell, I want to proclaim that according to the blood of the covenant, I am freed, I am healed, I am, have mercy, I am justified, I am saved. Amen. Amen. Your sins are forgiven and your transgressions in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you. May He come upon you with His holy countenance and have mercy upon you and give you peace. May among you all thousands and tens of thousands and not some near you. May all illnesses in your body be cursed. May all of the blessings of the ancient hills and everlasting mountains be upon you. May all this be upon you and upon you your descendants and may be fulfilled upon you. Amen. And now, let us all together proclaim our unchanging manifestation. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.